0: Now, if you have your Bibles uh, in Romans chapter 16, beginning at verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you by my good news, my gospel, and the proclamation of Yeshua the Messiah, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long years past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Yeshua, the Messiah. Amen. You know, when Paul closes these words, we get a further insight into the kind of individual he was. We've studied a lot of things in the book of Romans as we've gone through them these last, I guess, almost two years or so. And we've learned a lot about his theological perception and his understanding. We learned a lot about the revelation God has given to him. We learned some things about the congregation at Rome and the needs that they had. And we learned many things that are pertinent for our own lives, especially as you get toward the latter chapters in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. And we learned also about his love for others, even as he greeted those that were in Rome and as he expressed uh, the greetings of those that are with him in Corinth as he's writing this letter. So there, there are many things we have reflected o- on over the years that we have looked at this, chapter, at this book. And as we come to the end of this letter, just like the beginning, it seems that he's made this like circle. You know, he's just come back to where he started everything in chapter 1. Because these verses, if you look at verse 25, begins with, now to him. And then as you, as we come down, look at verse 26. He says, by the command of the eternal God. If you look at verse 26, so that all nations might obey him. And in verse 27, to the only wise God. If there is one thing that is certainly true of Paul, he is, as we might say, theocentric. He is God-centered. Everything about him is, revolves around his relationship with God. So that for Paul, what he does is what God would will him to do. What he trusts in is what God would enable him to perform and to provide for him. When he thinks of salvation, it is that which God has granted by his own grace. And so as he concludes this letter, he wants to draw the attention of the readers. Not to those who are with him, although he's made reference to them. Not even to their own selves and their own particular needs. But he wants to draw their attention once more to God himself. And so he says, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel. Now we may think when he says my gospel, well that is... It's sort of an irritating phrase, isn't it? You know, when we think of people who always talk about my life, my job, my children, my whatever it is. We kind of get annoyed at people like that, don't we? Where they're always so self-focused on what they are doing, you get the impression that there's no real interest in others. And so when you read a a phrase like that, you almost think, is Paul now all of a sudden drawing attention to himself when he says, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel? But when Paul uses the word my, especially in a phrase like this, he doesn't mean that which belongs to him. He means that certainly which was entrusted to him because Paul is really the architect of the good news. He's the one who was entrusted to explain to us all that had transpired in the life of Messiah. His teachings are preeminent in helping to un- us to understand what God was doing when he first created the world, what he is doing now, and what he's going to do in the future. This is what Paul was particularly called to express. So when he speaks about my gospel, he doesn't mean that which belongs to me, but that which was entrusted to me. That which was entrusted to me to explain more fully than it has been thus far. It's another way in which he says the true good news. And that may sound very pejorative, very narrow-minded, like there's no other good news out there. And Paul would say that is exactly what I'm trying to say. There is no other good news out there. This is it. And thus to him who is able... To establish you. Because there is no one else who can establish us. This word establish is a significant word for Paul. It's a word that speaks of settling us down. It means laying a firm foundation under us. Now to the one who is able to settle you. Put a foundation under your feet. Because he knows, like we have all experienced, the trials and tribulations that are going to invade our lives. Yesterday when I had opportunity to conduct the ceremony, I did something different than I've really ever done when I've uh, spoken to a couple that were standing in front of me. I always focused on the joy that is now awaiting you. How the Lord has brought this individual into your life specifically for you, I didn't say this, but it always goes through my mind as well, that there are billions of women out there, billions of men out there, and all of a sudden, it's this one that is the one that you say, will you marry me? Will you go through the rest of your life with me together? And we haven't had a chance to really check out all the other ones that are out there. We haven't had a chance to see, is this really the best one? And yet all of us who are married have been able to come to that conclusion, this is the one for me. God somehow in his sovereignty enables us to say no to everyone else in the world and yes to this one individual that comes into our lives. I think that's amazing. And when when one reflects on that, I love to speak to the couple about the joy that is yours because look what the Lord has given to you. But yesterday, I also threw in another line, and that is, especially when drinking the first uh, cup, that wine is sweet tasting, and therefore, we are to be reminded of the joys. But it also has a bitterness to it, a sourness to it, and therefore, we have to be reminded that life is going to throw us a lot of curves. The evil one is going to want to distract us from following him. The Lord is going to allow some of these things to come into our lives so that it is he that we rely upon and not our substances and others around us. And so you have to be prepared for that. And so I just said in passing to this couple that to uh, Meredith and to Andrew that when those challenges come into your life, because they will, you can bear them not only because the Lord is with you, although certainly that is most important and significant, but He's given you each other to endure those trials. As well, Paul is saying something like this here. Now to him who is able to establish you by my message, by my good news, that's how God will establish us. That's how God will settle things under our feet. That's how God will give us a foundation that will not erode out from, other, from uh, under us. We have to remember, you know, we all get attracted to teachers. We all find individuals that proclaim the good news and the teachings of God's Word very attractive to us and enthralling. We find ourselves just absorbed by them, whether they're authors whose books we love to read or radio personalities we love to listen to or even churches or congregations we like to visit. We need to remember that it is none of that upon which we are established, but it is God Himself. For we will all fail one another, we'll all miscue, we'll all say things that are not really true. And one day the Lord will say, you know, when you preached on that, that wasn't quite right. You know, maybe we thought it was. But we don't have it all together. Scripture says, we all see through a glass darkly. There are some things that are very crystal clear. I don't know how you get away from when, you know, the Scripture says, there's no other name under heaven by which a person might be saved but the name of Messiah. You know, I don't know how you get around something like that. I don't know how you get around something when Yeshua says, you know, there is no other way to heaven but by me. And things of that sort. There are certain passages, yes, we understand, that are very clear and precise. But then there are other things that sort of hit us differently. And therefore we have to be reminded it is God himself who establishes us and the one to whom we trust. I love this phrase, now to him who is able. That little phrase speaks of the sovereignty of God. It speaks of the power of God. It speaks of the might of God. He's the one who is there for whatever help we need. He is the one who is able to save. He is the one who is able to provide us with whatever provisions we might need. He is the one who will provide us and is able to grant us spiritual gifts to serve him. He is the one who is able to do more than we could ever ask or think. And so Paul says here now to him who is able to establish you. And what he establishes us by is his message. And his message is the proclamation of Yeshua the Messiah. That is the heart of the good news message, Messiah himself. It is important for us to realize how often Messiah himself takes second stage or second place in our lives. And yet Paul puts him at the heart of the message. It is the good news account of Paul by which he establishes us. And what does that message consist of? It consists of Messiah himself. Over the course of history, there have been many things about which uh, believers have disagreed, argued, and has caused considerable controversy among believers. There was a time in church history where there was great controversy over the mode of immersion, (laughs) the mode of baptism. Do we fully immerse? Do we sprinkle? Do we pour? People killed each other over issues like that. There were issues over, you know, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we drink the cup and break the bread, what did those elements symbolize? When Yeshua says, This is my body, there was great controversy over well, is this really his body? Is this the body of Messiah right before us? And the Catholic Church argued that it was. It was the Lutheran Church that held to a different view? that said that by the preaching of the word, these elements transformed into those element, into those realities of the body and blood of Messiah. And then there was other thinkers that said, no, this is just a memorial, a representation. People killed each other over those distinctive ideas. But Paul tells us the heart of the gospel is not what we understand about the Lord's Supper. It is not what we understand understand about these doctrinal issues. In our context, we have congregations that are very argumentative about what day we ought to worship on. We have congregations that are very argumentative about to what degree is the Mosaic law to be applicable to our lives, although we must be careful not to insinuate that to be saved by works is in any way, shape, or form acceptable to Paul. But what I'm trying to get at is it's Messiah that should be the heart and soul of our lives. And we ought to recognize that some of these theological issues are peripheral issues that shouldn't take center stage in our, among our concerns. And so here Paul tells us that the good news by which the Lord is able to establish us is the proclamation of Messiah Himself he tells us that this proclamation of Messiah himself is a mystery that's been hidden from the foundations of the world. And that struck me because when one looks at the book of Genesis, the very early chapters, in chapter 3, we have a prophecy of the coming Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. And so when I looked at this passage that said that it was according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, Was this message really hidden so that it wasn't understandable when so much of God's word reveals to us what his intentions were? But I think what Paul means by mystery here is a little different than what he oftentimes means by it in other places. In other places, when Paul uses the word mystery, he always means that which had not been revealed before but is now made known. That's what a mystery is in the Bible. It doesn't mean something hard to scrutinize or figure out. It means something that had not been revealed before but is now made known to us and made clear. And so Paul will speak about the mystery of the rapture of believers. I show you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. He says, some will put on, this immortality will put on, or this mortality will put on immortality. This corruption will put on incorruption. He speaks of this mystery that will take place, that had never been spoken of before in the Scriptures, and now Paul brings it to light. In the book of Romans, Paul uses the word mystery when he says that a mystery has happened in that a hardness has happened to Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. He says that's a mystery that no one had revealed before, that there would be a time in history when a blindness would come upon the Jewish people, on our people, and some, a remnant, would believe among the that people but the reason for that would be so that the good news would be made known to the Gentile world and when the fullness of the Gentiles become in then this blindness will dissipate and we'll see all Israel shall be saved but Paul in Romans 11 says that is a mystery there are a number of other mysteries Messiah himself speaks of the mystery of the congregation of the body of believers during this day and he gives us these parables about the mystery form of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, for example. But I don't think Paul is being that precise here. I think when he speaks about this mystery that's been hidden for long ages past, I think what he means to reveal is the idea by which God would bring salvation to us is something that no one could ever have figured out before. And now I'm making it clear to you. salvation by means of Messiah's coming is something that no one in their own human imagination could ever have devised or dreamed up in fact when you get to the end of this passage look at verse 27 he says to the only wise God be glory forever through the Messiah speaks of the wisdom of God which is past finding out the mystery of how God has made known himself to us is something we never imagined. And this is what Paul has been speaking about in the book of Romans. In Romans, for example, chapters 1 to 4, he told us of this mystery by which the Lord saves us. And he tells us that he declares us righteous by his grace. We use the word justification. Chapters 1 to 4, that's what he's focused upon how the Lord declares us righteous. And what He tells us is that He declares us righteous by His grace on the basis of the atoning sacrifice Messiah has provided for us. We would never have dreamed up this idea. How could God justify His righteousness, His justice, while at the same time being gracious and merciful, to those that are in need of His grace and mercy without violating His justice. In other words, we have all sinned. We read it this morning, Psalm 51. We sang of it, creating me a clean heart. Why? Because we are all sinners. We've all violated God's standards. We are all guilty before Him and therefore worthy of His judgment. And He must judge us because we have violated His righteousness. So how can God save us? How can he redeem us? Paul says this is something humanity could never have dreamed up. And what he had done is in the person of his son had come into our world, took on our humanity, carried our burdens, though he himself was sinless, and in carrying our burdens could then satisfy the justice of God. And in satisfying the justice of God, it frees God up to uh, to extend His love in mercy and in grace. Who could ever have thought of that, Paul is saying. It is a mystery hidden from the beginning of the world. None of us could have figured it out, but that's what God had done. And that's the good news that God has entrusted to me, or at least a part of it. That because of what Messiah has done for us, We can stand righteous and forgiven before Him. In chapters 5 through 8, He speaks about this issue of sanctification, being conformed into the image of His Son. How does God work righteousness in us by His Spirit? We are prone to devise a means by which we can stand before God and be accepted by Him because of what we do. And so we are prone to fall into the wrong idea of works righteousness. We are prone to think that morality is something we conjure up and we then give to God. And somehow he says, thank you, now I can be gracious to you and enable you to be holy. But Paul tells us that's not how it works. On the other hand, we might think, well, if we're saved by grace, we don't have to worry about good deeds at all. And we might conclude that because God has been merciful and gracious and we are not saved by our own actions, then performing good deeds is unimportant. And we can fall into the misunderstanding of what is referred to as antinomianism, lawlessness. And we can live any way we want. Or we might go the other degree, as I said earlier, and fall prey to thinking that we have to somehow conjure up righteousness and then we come into a works-related righteousness. Who would think up such a thing that by God's grace and mercy He would unite us with God Himself? And in uniting us with Him, He imparts to us His life. And therefore, no one is declared righteous apart from being regenerated. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit is. He makes us new creations. He makes us alive unto God. We who are dead in trespasses and sins are now made alive. How are we made alive? The life of God has breathed into us his own life. And thus what dwells within us is new life. And new life must manifest itself in good deeds. That's what Paul tells us. Good deeds don't come by virtue of our trying to do the best we can. It comes by allowing the life of God to live himself out through us. And so Paul is saying he protects both the righteousness of God, the mercy of God. He protects us from thinking we have to conjure up and be a works-related individual, while at the same time not thinking that our life doesn't matter. It's important that we live a life of God. It's important that we show ourselves to be ones who are being conformed into the image of Messiah. It's important that we allow God to live His life in us, and through us. It isn't a matter of avoiding bad things. It's a matter of allowing God to have control of our lives and rejoicing in him. This, Paul says, is a mystery hidden. Who would think that the way that we would become good would be by God having his way in us? We would think we've got to obey these commandments. And that's what religious people do all the time. Our own people included. As you see, this is Yeshua's controversy with the religious leaders of his day. But what Paul is telling us is it doesn't work that way. But it's rather have the mind of Messiah in you. When he left heaven and came and dwelt among us and brought life into Our world. Now, Paul says a few other things, and let me conclude with this. He tells us it's now been revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. And I love this final phrase in this verse where he says, so that all nations might believe and obey him. I think it's important, too, that we have a sense of concern for the world around us. When Paul concludes his letter... He focused our our attention on God himself. And he tells us he's the one who is able to establish us and to lay a firm foundation under us that will uphold us and strengthen us. He's the one who tells us that he is such a wise God that he has provided salvation and redemption and sanctification and cleansing and all of those things by his mercy and grace without violating his justice and his righteousness. Something we would never figure out In a million years but that God has revealed to us by his prophets and even though he's revealed them by his prophets they were still difficult to decipher as Peter tells us in in first Peter chapter 1 where he says even the prophets themselves wanted to look into the things they wrote in order to try to understand what they had written it's almost as if they wrote some things they knew what they were writing and then they said I don't know what it all means But they knew that this is what God wanted them to write. And they didn't know when or exactly how this was all to come to fruition. But God, in his wisdom and in his plan, brought these things to fruition. And now Paul says, here it is and it is for you to benefit from, enjoy, and to live in accordance with. And then he says, in this last phrase, so that God has done all of these things so that all nations might believe and obey him. God's concern is with people, and therefore our concern must be with people as well. In each one of the good news accounts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even in the book of Acts, when Yeshua's departure is recorded by all the writers, everyone records a final commission of Messiah to the believers. To go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Every one of them. In, I think it's Luke's account, he will say, Even as the Father has sent me, so send I you. In Matthew's account, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the, of the age. Go into all the world and proclaim the good news. In the book of Acts, we read it every, every Sunday. You are to be my witnesses unto the ends of the earth, beginning in Jerusalem and to the very ends of the earth. Every account, the last words of Messiah is to bring the message of who I am and what I've provided to others. I've always thought the last words, the last testament of anyone sometimes are the most important words of their life. The last thing they can say, what can I share? It's just like at the wedding Uh, service yesterday, I said to the fathers and the mothers, I'm going to give you opportunity when you bring your daughter or your son up toward the chuppah, I'm just going to pause this is your time to sort of have your final say to them before they're going to say to each other I do and I will and so it's always wonderful to watch them as they're coming up and then things happen, you know, that they don't even prepare for I was talking to Andrew's father, and uh, he was telling me afterwards, he said, you know, that was a really special moment for me. I had no idea how I was going to feel. I didn't think I'd feel the way I did when I was there at that particular moment. And he said, I'm so grateful that you gave us an opportunity, didn't just rush through it, but an opportunity there to sort of express to one another what we were feeling at that very, very moment. It's almost like those last words, you know, so important and significant. And Messiah's last words might be some of his most important words, certainly the most important words to you and I. We are to be ones that are concerned for others, for their salvation, and being ready to share with them those words of life. And so Paul, in his concluding remarks here, says, so that all nations might believe and obey him. And then he concludes, not with a benediction, a blessing, but he concludes with what is referred to as a doxology. Doxa is the Greek word for glory. And so he gives a final word of glorification to God. And so he says, to the only wise God, be glory forever. And again, Yeshua is the heart of it all. Through Yeshua the Messiah, amen. Let me just say very quickly. Notice he concludes by bringing glory to God. We break this down this way. Some things to think about. Glory to God. Then he says glory to the only God. You know, and he's already indicated there is no other gods. And he's acknowledged that he is the only God with whom we have to do. He not only says glory to God, glory to the only God, but he says glory to the only wise God, the one that we can entrust our very lives to. And then he says, glory to him through the Messiah of Israel. Amen. One last thing. This word amen, we oftentimes translate, sometimes it's translated as verily in the Gospels, King James. Sometimes it's translated as truly. The word amen comes from the Hebrew word meaning to have faith. Same word for faith. And what It denotes is a concluding statement that I place my faith and my trust in him. In this case, it is in the Lord and in all that was written about him that is true, which would be the book of Romans. He's saying amen to this. Now, here's a neat thing that I was thinking about. When you look at Yeshua's own words, before he says something important, He always says, Amen. He says, Amen, Amen. You know, you must be born again. When Yeshua speaks, Amen precedes what he says. When you and I speak, it always concludes what we say. I can't think of a time I've ever prayed and said, Amen, Lord, you know, and then start praying. In fact, I get a little clumsy, you know. (laughs) Try it, you know, Amen, and then start praying, you know, because you feel that, no, it's the end of it. I thought it's interesting to think Yeshua starts his things by saying you need to have faith and to trust in what I'm about to say very deeply. And then we say to the Lord, we believe in those things. Thank you for telling us those. And we trust in them. We conclude by saying amen to the things God says to us by first saying amen. Listen up to this. And then we say we've listened. You know, essentially what that means. So when Paul concludes... He concludes with a note, faith and trust in our God and all that we have learned about him through this letter. And thus, after we've read it and studied it, all the people said, amen. Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for these words of Paul. What marvelous, what a marvelous letter, perhaps one of the most important, if not the most important document written in history, and we have opportunity to reflect on it, study on it, muse over it. And so, Lord, we pray that the truths contained in this letter would take up residence in our hearts. Father, we need to review it and review it and review it again and relearn it. But, Lord, I pray you might bring to our minds when needed many of the things that we've learned here in this passage and in this uh, document that Paul has written. But, Father, like him, our attention is drawn to you. You are the maker of heaven and earth. You are the one who has sent your Son into the world for us. You are the one who has created us in your image. You are the one against whom we have sinned. You are the one who is worthy of all our praise. You are the one who is worthy of our gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you have done and continue to do for us. You are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And besides you, there is no God. And so, Lord, help us when we would have other gods before us. They may not be Zeus or Jupiter, but they might be our own ambitions. They might be money that we acquire by our own efforts. They may be prestige and reputation. But sometimes, Lord, these become idols and gods in your place. Protect us from doing that. But we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged For you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think. And you are the one who can establish us and strengthen us and empower us and lay a foundation who is Messiah, the rock underneath our feet that we would not stumble or fall. But when we do, we know that you are there to pick us up, raise us up, and indeed one day will raise us from the dead and to bring us into your very presence. And so, Lord, it is to you alone who is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. It is to you alone that we are indebted for all that we have and all that we have become. And so, Lord, we would add our own amen to Paul's and to countless others throughout the generations who after reading this book recited with Paul those same very words. Glory be to the only wise God, through Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.